You guys okay? Yeah, good, good. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a bit of a scratchy throat today, um, but we'll make it through, I'm sure. Um, we're hanging out in the book of James. So if you've got your Bible, you want to open it there. We're in the New Testament, almost right towards the end. Okay, so uh, after the book, le- letter of Hebrews, we get the letter of James. While you guys are finding that, let me just, um, let me just pray, if that's all right. Father God, thank you for your presence in our midst today. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you're a God who dwells among us and speaks into our hearts and into our lives. And you do that as well through your written word. And we pray, Lord, that today as we read your written word, that your spirit would bring it to be the living word in us. Lord, more than what I say, I pray that your words would speak to each one of our hearts. Give us open and humble hearts and minds today to hear the things that you want to say to each one of us in this place. Come, Holy Spirit. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Great. Uh, Okay, so a little bit of background about James. Um, First up, he's, well, we'll get to that in a second. First up, he was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Okay, so uh, during the first century after the death and resurrection of Jesus, James was a leader in the, in, in the church in Jerusalem, in like the main church that everything else kind of flowed out of. Uh, he was a leader there. Secondly, I want to say he's a liar. He's not. Somebody else is a bit of a liar. But he's not actually called James. All right, His name's actually Jacob. Uh, if you look in the Greek, you get there, Jacob is his name. Um, I believe, I'm not totally certain on this, but I believe the story goes a little bit like this. At some point uh, when the Bible was being translated into English, good old King James, who put his name on the front of the Bible, wasn't just happy enough to have his name on the front of the Bible. He also wanted a book in the Bible named after him. So he looked and he went, well, we'll take Jacob, the brother of Jesus, and we'll just change that to James. And so we've now got James, the letter from James, but his name was actually Jacob, bless him. Um, He's been misidentified all these years, but we'll we'll claim that back. That's who he is, okay? And he's actually, like I just said, he's the brother of Jesus. So he's one of the sons of Mary and Joseph. He's one of Jesus' half-brothers, okay? And this is who he is. So he, he knew Jesus intimately. He knew him really, really well. He walked alongside him. He grew up with him. He knew the things of Jesus' heart and the teachings that Jesus was longing for his followers to get. And, and so much so that he became a leader in the church and he was sharing that with the church. And this is kind of... Um, a letter that he wrote to the church beyond Jerusalem, out across the nations. He writes it to them and he's basically like, guys, like, I'm just going to brain dump on you some of the key big teachings that I think that Jesus gives. And that's kind of what he does. His letter is a bit of a mess of the teachings of Jesus, right? He, he jumps backwards and forwards to different teachings and they get repeated or kind of fleshed out in different ways. Uh, but that's essentially what is going on. I don't know about you. Who's read James? Great, fantastic. I don't know about you, but as I was reading through James this week, I found it harder to read than I did reading Chronicles. <laughs> like, you know all the names, chapters 1 to 9? I thought that was easier to read than the letter from James. Here's why. I, I, I started reading James, and I like most of you, even though I love the Old Testament, like most of you, I probably got to it and I was a bit like, oh, okay, a little bit of light relief, we're in the New Testament. And I started reading James and I felt like he just punched me and then punched me again and then punched me again. And I felt like I was just beat up by James by the time I got to the end of the letter. I was like, Phew. like that was like a full on wrestling match. That was hard going. 
You start reading through James and he's tackling some really difficult things. And if you actually read it and you let it read you, you're not going to make it through the letter of James coming out the other side going, well, wasn't that jolly? That's just not, that's not what's going to happen. Okay, James is actually a really, really tough letter. He starts off, doesn't he? He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Isn't that such a lovely verse? Don't you love it when you're going through something difficult and someone says to you, ah, oh, brother, consider it pure joy. You're like, going to punch you in a minute. Um, <laughs> but that, that's how he kicks this letter off. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. I don't know about you, but as I was reading that this week, I, I came to realize I think I've maybe misunderstood what James meant by trials. You see, when I read that originally, what was going through my head was the oppression of the Romans or uh, the kind of the, the, insult, the insults that other Jews would have kind of thrown towards the Jewish believers in Jesus. I, I, was, I was thinking that. When you face these trials, these, these oppressions, these insults, these battles, consider it pure joy. And maybe it is. But I actually think what was going on is that James basically sets up this thing. He says, guys, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, things that test your faith because they will produce perseverance. And actually, I think the opening verses of this letter, there are a little caveat where James is going, this is going to be fun. I'm about to test your faith. I'm about to put your faith on trial. Are you ready? Consider it pure joy. Here we go. And I think that actually, as you read through the letter, what you discover is that James, he may have been talking about the oppression of the Romans or the insults of other Jews or whatever. But I think that when he talks about trials, trials that test your faith, I think what he actually was meaning was everything that he's about to hit you with. Right? He's about to hold up the teaching of Jesus and say to you, hey, as a follower of Jesus, how are you doing with this and with this? And with this, and with this. And maybe on the first one, you were like, yeah, I'm all right on that one. The second one, I'm all right on that. But I promise you, at some point through that letter, you're going to be like, ooh, gut punch. And that's what he's doing. He's putting on trial the faith of the believers. How are you doing against all of these things? Um, if you, you read through James, you can go back and look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, 8 there, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and you will find that almost everything that James talks about is lifted straight out of that teaching, almost straight out of that teaching that Jesus gives. So this isn't James just making up new stuff. This is James referring back to what our Lord and Savior taught us, the very words that he gave to us. James is saying, come on, let me just remind you of this. Let me just put our faith as a church back on trial again. How are we doing against these things? What does it look like for us as followers of Jesus? It's a little bit like the psalmist says, search me, O God. That's what's going on in the letter to James. It's this deep cry to search the church. Lord, search us, test us, purify us. What is going on in here? So um, we're going to sift through. We haven't got loads and loads of time. We could probably spend a good month or two just hanging out in James, just going through bit by bit all the stuff that he says. But what I want to do today, because we've only got one week, I want to just skim through some of the teachings, some of the things, the trials that he puts our faith on and just throw them out there almost as a little, how's that one? 
How's that one land? How you, do you know what I mean? I just want to kind of throw them out there. And then when we get to the end of that, we're going to circle back to this considerate pure joy. And we're going to talk a little bit about why it's pure joy to be tested in our faith. Is that okay? All right. So um, let's jump in. Considerate pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Because you know, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And he kind of unpacks that a little bit. And then he gets down to verse 9. And uh, here it comes, teaching number one of Jesus. He says this. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. This is lifted from the very, very first line of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. If you go to Luke's version of that teaching, he literally just says, blessed are the poor. There's no in spirit bit added on the end. And so you can kind of argue about, well, which one was it? What did Jesus mean? I'm going to say, I think he meant both. (laughs) I think he meant both. Okay, and, and I want to throw out there the first trial. It's a trial when we find ourselves in humble circumstances, right? It's a trial when we find ourselves struggling financially, when we find ourselves struggling with all kinds of things, when we are lacking money or lacking X, Y, or Z. You, you insert there whatever you want. When we find ourselves in humble circumstances, it, it's a test of our faith. Do we actually believe the very first line of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. So when we find ourselves in those, those humble circumstances, those trials, do we actually trust Jesus? Do we put our faith in Jesus? Do we believe what he said? Are we persuaded about his teaching? Is this true? When I find myself in this situation, am I blessed? Do I actually believe what Jesus said? And do I trust that as I find myself in this position, I will inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do I believe that? I'm going to put my hand up and say there have been points in my life where I've hit humble circumstances. And in those moments, sometimes I've believed it. And I've believed it. And I've believed it. And then nothing seemed to change. And eventually I start to question it. And I'm like, how am I doing with that? And I think we struggle with that sometimes. But let me tell you why I think you should be proud of your humble circumstances, as James says. Because, and hear me, you might never have realized this. And historically, we as a church maybe have got this wrong. But when brothers and sisters find themselves in humble circumstances, they are a gift to the church. They are a gift to the church. You see, when someone is struggling, when someone financially doesn't have all that they need, when someone is in a humble circumstance, there becomes an opportunity for the church to lavish grace, to lavish upon them blessing, to reveal to the world what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be in community with other people that are so full of all that he has blessed us with that we share it together and look after one another. So when you are in a humble circumstance... You should be proud of that because you are a gift to the church that allows the church, that allows the church to actually model something of the ministry of Jesus to the world. You see, what actually happens is this. When we find ourselves in humble circumstances, what we tend to do is withdraw a little bit. 
close up a little bit, hide a little bit, a little bit more, until eventually we're, oh, I'm not sure I can even maybe face going today. I'm just going to, don't really want to tell anyone. And what we actually do, I'm not saying be proud and boastful in a kind of an arrogant, negative way, but I'm saying be real, be upfront, bring what you're going through to our church family so that we have an opportunity to love one another, to bless one another, to model the love of Christ to one another and to the world through one another. That's one of the reasons why we started the Family Care Fund, so that we could do that, so that we could look out for one another, that we could bless one another financially if that was needed. So teaching number one, trial number one. When you find yourselves in humble circumstances, do you really believe the words of Jesus that say you will be blessed because the kingdom of heaven will be yours. Trial number one. Trial number two um, goes down to, uh, yeah, let's go verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Anybody follow the modern music scene? Heard of someone called Taylor Swift? She's got a song out at the moment. I don't know the song. I know one line from it because it keeps popping up on Instagram and everywhere and it gets stuck in our heads and Emily absolutely hates it because I start singing it and then it gets stuck in her head and later that day she's singing it and it gets stuck. But it goes like this. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. It's just, this is the one line I know. And so we just keep singing it over and over. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. This is what this verse is telling us. We are the problem. Not God. So often when we go through something in life, what's the first thing we do? Ah, that's their fault. That's his fault. That's, do you know? Why are you doing this to me? Why have they done this to me? Why has this happened? Why has that happened? But what this verse tells us, which comes out to the teaching of Jesus, is that actually we are the problem. You know that Romans tells us that all have sinned? All have sinned sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. It tells us in the Bible that our own hearts are dark. I don't like to think of my heart being dark, probably like most of you, but the truth is our hearts are dark. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isn't that what happens in Genesis 3? Do you remember when sin enters the world in the story, you got Adam and Eve. What's the first thing they do? Adam. It was her, Eve. It was the snake. It was always somebody else's fault. It was never my own. But, okay, maybe the snake said that to you, but did, did you do something about that? You, you did. Okay, great. And, and Adam, maybe she gave it to you, but did you receive it and eat it? Yeah. All oh, oh, right, you did. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're all in this. We're all in this. We're the problem. Our sinful hearts are the problem. <sighs> Trial number two. Bang. We should just stop there, right? <laughs> Go home. I mean, I'm done already. Like, trial number two, we're so quick to, to judge and blame others, but have we checked our own hearts? Have we checked our own uh, hearts? There's a verse in Proverbs 13, verse 10. It says, where there is strife, there is pride. What that means is, 
you, do you notice that quite often where you go, there's someone who's being argumentative with you, this situation's difficult, that thing's going, there's strife. And what the, what the, the writer of Proverbs is saying is, Maybe if you're seeing that all around you, if there's strife all around you, maybe the problem isn't out there. Maybe the problem is in here. Maybe the problem's pride. Maybe there's something wrong in your own heart. Oh. How's your faith doing? <laughs> Let's go to trial number three. Because this is fun. Um, trial number three. <laughs> is it? Is it? Uh, verse 19. There's good news coming, I promise you, okay? Just hang with me for a little bit, all right? Uh, verse 19. Uh, my bro- dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law and gives, um, that gives freedom and continues in it, not just looks into it, but continues in it, walks in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in all that they do. Next trial. Anybody ever been angry at someone? Ah, oh, thank you for putting your hands up. I thought it was just going to be me. <laughs> Man. <laughs> be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Do you remember Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not commit murder, but I tell you. And he goes on, he doesn't change the word, but he reveals the deeper meaning of what God was getting at. And he says, hey, if you even harbor anger in your heart towards your brother or sister, it's like you've already committed murder in your heart. The problem isn't just what comes out, the problem is what's in here. The problem is what's going on inside. When you get angry with someone... Do you go back and think about the teaching of Jesus and to think that actually Jesus, he loved the world so much that he gave himself to die for them? Even that person that you're angry with right now. Do you believe that Jesus can forgive them? Do you believe that you should then forgive them because you have been forgiven much as well? Should you let that anger go? It's hard, isn't it? Verse 22, which says, do as the word says. Don't just listen to it, but do it. This is what we're talking about here. Have you heard the words of Jesus and are you actually living them out? Jesus said, there was a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And there was a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And when the storms of life come, because they come wherever you build your house, the guy who built his house on the sand, well, it was all washed away. But the guy who built his house upon the rock and had a foundation built into it, his life stood. The winds did not blow him around. And Jesus says, when you listen to my teaching and you do what I say, you're like the guy that built his house upon the rock. How's your building going? How's your house? What have you built upon? Have you heard the words of Jesus and gone, that's lovely? And then gone back to being angry at someone? Or have you heard the words of Jesus and gone, oh, Lord, change my heart. Change my heart. 
Okay. Next trial. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Uh, I'm not going to read all of it, but in this, in this bit here, he starts talking about discrimination. Probably most of us here are like, yeah, we, know, we don't discriminate. <laughs> and I hope that's true. I, I hope and pray that that's true. But I reckon probably most of us, even without thinking about it at times, discriminate. This guy, James, or Jacob, he gives an example. He says, hey, when you're gathering together as church and someone comes in with lots of money and you think, boom, hey, I've saved you a seat. Come and sit with me. I want to be friends with you. And then the other person comes in and they haven't got a lot of money or they're not the kind of person that you like to hang out with or they're a bit weird and quirky because let's be fair, some of you are a bit weird and quirky, all right? Okay, like, but that happens and they come in and you're like, quick, sit next to me. <laughs> that's discrimination. That's, that's, it doesn't have to be because of racism or anything like that. You can discriminate based simply upon the fact of who someone is, what they're like. But you know what? You're going to spend eternity with these people. So get to like them now, because eternity will be much easier if you get to like them now. Promise. <laughs> they're your brothers and sisters. They're your brothers and sisters. Jesus, when he called the disciples to him, he called to him idiots. Like, who's, anyone watching The Chosen? Anybody already dislike Peter? Like, no. <laughs> like, in, in the TV series, I'm like, mate, seriously, take it easy upon Matthew. Um, but anyway, that's a side thing. Um, but he called to himself a bunch of people that were broken and useless and they weren't all perfect. And one of them, one of them was a tax collector. One of them was a failed fisherman. One of them was going to betray him. And he still said, I want you to come and hang out with me. He didn't say, ah, you just stay at the back there. He said, come and be one of the 12. He didn't discriminate. He welcomed all. He welcomed all. In fact, verse 9 of chapter 2 tells us that uh, to discriminate is a sin. It's a sin. It's not just not a nice thing to do. It's actually a sin. Oh, wow. <laughs> Love your enemies, Jesus said. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Pray for them. Honor them. <sighs> okay. Uh, next trial. Chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Okay, I'm really hoping, really hoping that most of us here are not struggling with those two laws in particular, okay? All right, if you are, come and see me, and we can talk, all right? But, um, <laughs> but whatever, his point here is this. If you're trying to keep all the law and you're living a really, really good life and you're being all righteous and I'm a follower of Jesus and that's great. And then you slip up just once. You break just one law. You have broken the law. Do you see that? If I cut this ribbon here, it makes no difference if I cut it here or here. It's broken. The law is broken. You've broken the law. Just breaking one law is enough to condemn us to hell. One law. hard isn't it <laughs> really hard I, I like to think I've done pretty well but I've 
definitely broken more than one. Definitely. Multiple times. Probably even in this last week. Please don't fire me. Um, but <laughs> what was that? You watch yourself, you. Um, yeah. but, but genuinely, how are you getting on honoring your mother and father? Do they annoy you at times? You never, never do, mum. It's okay. I think I just lied. Is that one of the commandments as well? <laughs> Oops. See? I'm trying to not break one, I broke another. This is the nightmare. It's a nightmare. Oh. So, as if like that's not hard enough, he's like he's still throwing these punches. You keep reading through, and he keeps going. You get you get down to this next bit, verses fourteen to twenty-two, um, and he says, "Hey, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Such faith uh, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed." but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Man, many of us are like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I love singing the songs. I, I, I love to hear the verses like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I like to pray for people that I like. I, <laughs> I believe, I believe. But does your life look like you believe? Does it look like you believe? How many times have you passed someone in need or how many times have you not helped a brother or how many times have you been like, oh my gosh, they're in need again? Like... I, I don't know, like, seriously, how does your life look? How does your life look? I read it, um, I'm reading a commentary on worship. It's just one of the fun things that I like to do in my spare time. And um, in this commentary on worship, there's a quote that I, I love. Uh, I thought I'd read it to you. He says this, uh, <clears throat> doctrinal instruction. So what he means by that is just teaching, okay? Teaching from the scriptures, scriptural teaching. Doctrinal instruction has... Uh, which has no ethical and behavior, uh, behavioral implications is mere religion. Well, ethical inst- uh, instruction, which has no foundation in the gospel, is mere legalism. Do, do you catch that, what he's saying? One without the other, one is just religion, dead religion, dry religion, and the other without the other is, so actions without faith or, is, is just legalism. And neither legalism nor religion can save you. Only faith in Jesus saves. And faith in Jesus looks like something. The word faith, we said this before, it means pistis. It means to be persuaded about something, to be so convinced about who Jesus is and what he did that I will stand on this and put my weight on it and my life on it and I will live by it. That's what faith is. Faith isn't just a nice belief, like a decision in my mind, like just, well, I feel it here. It's lovely, isn't it? This kind of warm feeling of Jesus' love. 
Now that, you may experience the love of Jesus like that. And that's epic. Praise the Lord for that. More of that. More of that. But if that doesn't lead you to do something, have you actually really put your faith in Jesus? Have you built your life on him? Does, it, does your life look like it? The Bible says that everything that does not come from faith is sin. So, okay, maybe you're the other camp. Maybe you're like, I'm doing all the things. But have you actually genuinely put your faith and hope in Jesus? Because all the action without the faith is just legalism. And actually, that's just sin. You're missing the mark. That's just you trying to save yourself, which you cannot do. Which you cannot do. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. If you actually love me, then you'll do what I've said to do. And it will look like something. Anybody feeling beaten up? Yeah. No? Okay, let's keep going. Um, verse, so chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. I won't read all of this, but another song. Who likes the stereophonics? Anyone? Yeah! There's a verse here in verse in verse 5. Halfway through it says, Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. And the philosopher Kelly Jones from the Stereophonics said, it only takes one tree to make a thousand matches and it only takes one match to burn a thousand trees. There we go. Maybe you don't know what I'm on about, but that's absolutely fine. Great song. Um, The point here is that one word of the tongue can tear something down, can tear something down. But here's the thing. See, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. What have you said this week? Who have you said it to? Did you speak life and hope, love, grace, forgiveness, peace, joy to them? Or did you speak something that cut them down, that burned their forest, that destroyed them and robbed them of life? And you might think, well, that was about them and what they deserved. But what you said came out of your mouth, and your mouth speaks what your heart is full of. I'm like, I'm done, James. Stop beating me up now. (laughs) Chapter 4. Let's let's jump down. Chapter 4. Again, he goes on talking about quarrels and arguments, and where does that come from? He says, they come from the desires within you. You see, under all of this teaching that James is giving, it's like the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Under all of his teaching, he's saying, guys, what is going on in here really, really matters. It really matters. Your actions, your words, what you do, what you say, all of it just flows from what's in your heart. How is your heart? How is your faith really? Have you built it upon the words of Jesus and who he is? Or do you still occasionally step back on other things and other feelings and other stories and other experiences and build it upon those things? Then he gets down to verse 4. And he says, you adulterous people, thanks. Don't you know that your friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. This is a hard one, right? Because... We love our friends in the world, don't we? Like, we love them. And hear me, you should love them. That's, this is not saying, do not love people that are not Christians. Don't misunderstand what this is saying, okay? But this is saying, if you love the culture of the world more than you love the word of the Lord, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. 
if you're building a friendship with the world, not people, but with the ways of the world, more than you're building a friendship with God, we've got a problem. And you may disagree with me on this, but I'm going to throw it out there. I'm worried about the church in our day and age. Right now, this last week, the Church of England, bless them, are making friends with the world. I'm worried about it. I'm worried about what is going on. And church, we need to really seriously think about what it means for us to be in the world and not of it. To be salt and light. To be a city on a hill that gives hope to the world around us that's in darkness. What does that look like? We're called by Jesus to be holy as he is holy. The word holy, it means simply just set apart, different from. To be like him and not like the culture of the world. So what do we do about all of these trials? If you've made it through completely unscathed, well done. You're teaching next Sunday. Um, (laughs) But if, like me, some of this stuff has challenged you, then what do we do about it? Because I don't want to sit in the kind of weight and depression of, I'm screwed. And I don't want that for our church. And I don't believe that's the message of the gospel. So what do we do? Well, thankfully, James keeps writing. And in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. We need him. We need him. If today your faith went on trial and while you were standing in the dock listening to the words of James being spoken at the trial that you were at and you realized that you are guilty and that you are about to be kind of, you know, thrown away for all the things you've done and that you are not living the Christian life and there's something wrong in your heart and you're with me in that and we're standing in the dock together. Well, hey, guess what? We need Jesus. We need him. And God's promise is this. Come near to him and he will come near to you. He will come near to you. Um, We're not great at all these things, but praise the Lord down in chapter 5, down uh, in verse 11, it tells us that the Lord is full. He is full of compassion and mercy. He is full of compassion and mercy. And that's the point that James is making. That's the point of his letter. He's writing and he's saying, guys, I want to put your faith on trial. I want to put it on trial, not to make you feel bad, but to help you realize that even though you believe, even though you're the church, don't stop pressing into Jesus because you still need him. You never stop needing him. And if you think that you've got it all right and you stop needing him, you've become a righteous person living either legalism or a dead religion. We need him. So let's go back to the beginning, back to James chapter 1, where he says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Here's the thing. James says this, trials... 
the testing of your faith lead to perseverance and perseverance leads to maturity and completion. Okay, a couple of things on that. First up, maturity and completion. Maturity in the Greek is that word we looked at a few weeks ago, teleos, okay? Um, And it means perfection. When our faith is tried, it leads to perseverance, and perseverance leads to us being made perfect. And you know that James or Jacob uses this word teleos, perfection, seven times in his letter. And if you remember last year when we were going through some of the Old Testament stuff and I got geeky about numbers and all that kind of thing, seven is a Hebrew number of perfection. And this is a Hebrew guy writing a letter to the church. And so he's used it seven times. He hasn't just put the word in there. He's put it in the perfect number of times to say, guys, pay attention. Okay. Jesus wants to make you perfect. And only by Jesus can you be made perfect. This is what he's telling us. Okay. We can be perfect in the eyes of God but not by anything that we do, by what he has done, by what he has done. So trials lead to perseverance, perseverance to maturity, to um, perfection. What does the word perseverance mean? And here's something that I want to land with and unpack with you guys. Because I, I don't know about you, but when someone says to me, persevere, So when I was a kid and we used to swim for a swimming club, Bristol Central Swimming Club, and we would go training several nights a week. And you get home from school and then your mum's like, right, come on, rush your tea down, get in the car. We've got to go. You've got to go training, right? We want to go swimming training. It was like slavery, okay? And (laughs) I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. It wasn't really. She was lovely, very supportive. But at the times when you were like, I can't do it. You know, I can't do it. I'm done. I'm never going to beat my personal best. I shouldn't be entering this race. And your mum gets alongside you. She's like, come on, you can do it. Keep going. Keep going. You know, when I was learning the organ as a kid, I got to grade seven with London College of Music. I had to play this piece of music and I shed tears over this piece of music. Keep going. No, I'm done. I'm learning the drums. And that's what I did. (laughs) But per- perseverance, I don't know about you, but that's what, that's what the word conjures up in my mind. Perseverance is like grit your teeth, hang in there, press on, keep going. Anybody else? That's, that's what I think of when I think of perseverance. It's a struggle, it's hard, it's not something that I want to do. But keep going anyway, because it will be good in the end, yeah. Grit your teeth, perseverance. I, I, I looked into the Greek as I like to do. And I discovered something about this word here in this letter, okay, which we translate as perseverance. This word in the Greek is made up of two Greek words that have smushed together to form a word. And the two Greek words that have been put together to form a word are the words hypo and meno. Hypo, meno. Hypo means under or in, okay, to be under something. And meno means to remain or to abide. So the word perseverance here that James, the brother of Jesus, is intentionally choosing to use because he knows Jesus and he knows the teaching of Jesus is this. When you face trials of many kinds and your faith gets tested, that leads to hypomino and that leads to perfection. See, the testing, it leads to you remaining in or abiding in. Ah, and suddenly that brought me a real joy because in John chapter 15, turn there with me, John chapter 15. Jesus talks a lot about Mino. Jesus calls us to abide in him, to remain in him. And what James or Jacob is saying to us is this. When your faith is tried and you realize that you're not living up to all that Jesus calls you to be, hey, 
abide in Jesus. Because by abiding in Jesus, you will be made perfect. Because only Jesus, only the word of Jesus, only the spirit of Jesus can bring about that transformation in you that will produce the life of Jesus in you. Nothing else, no amount of trying, no amount of working hard at it will do that. You see, if you abide in Jesus, not only will your faith be built and your relationship with God grow, but so too will your life start to look like his. John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that does not bear fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, he tests He cuts it back a little bit so that it will grow even more. I'm not a gardener. Emily and I, we fell miserably at it. She's much better than I am. But we had a room at one point that was full of dead plants. It was the plant graveyard. That's that's how things go in our house. Um, It's also the gym. It's the room we don't go in. The dead plants and the gym equipment live in there. Uh, (laughs) but, But I do know this, that if you want something to grow well, you prune it. And it grows. It grows. And you water it as well and all the other things, yeah. Great. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be what? Not in pain, but even more fruitful. What's God's heart for you? That you would be fruitful. That your life would be fruitful. That's his heart for you. You are already clean. Hey, Blake. You are already clean. Because of the word I have spoken to you, remain in me. That's that word there, abide, mino, remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Guys, if you want your life to look like Jesus, if you want to be living fully, a fully alive human being, expressing love and joy and and bringing all of that kind of stuff into the world around you, the only way that you will truly do it is if you root yourself in him, if you abide in him. You can't do it any other way. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Hey, mate. That is an epic little pram you've got there. Um, Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Okay, a couple of things about that. One, how do we remain in Jesus and how does he remain in us? Twice he has said it in this passage. He has said, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And then in this verse, just there that we read, verse 7, he says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, how do we remain in Jesus? By abiding in the word. Psalm 1 tells us that when we meditate on the word of the Lord, we are like a tree that grows deep roots, that produces fruit. When we spend time in the word and we let the word speak to our hearts, we suddenly start to discover that the spirit of God is more active and alive in our lives as well. Are you longing to see the spirit of God do stuff in your life? 
The Bible tells us that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. It is the sharp point that cuts between bone and marrow and breaks into our hearts, opening up a way for the spirit of God to be at work in our lives. If you want to abide in Jesus, abide in his word and let his word abide in you. Let his word abide in you. He goes on and he says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. How do we do that? He says this, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the father's commands and remain in his love. How do we remain in his love? By keeping his commands. How are his commands spoken to us? Spoken. They are words. They are written and spoken to us. He has told us what his commands are. He has spoken his words to us. And it is by remaining in them that we produce fruit. It is by remaining in his word that we will discover the work of the spirit in our lives. So let me just land by saying this. Nath, why don't you, you come? Let me just land by saying this. If today as we read through James you felt a little bit hit, then let me tell you today, you are not condemned. You are not condemned. We may have felt convicted as we held the teaching of Jesus up and realized that we fail all the time, every time we keep failing. We might have felt convicted by that, but we are not condemned because we have a God who is full of grace and mercy, who's full of compassion. And we have a God who tells us that the word that he has planted in us is able to save us, is able to save us. Do you need saving? Do you want full redemption to be fully alive as a human being? Do you want to be a human being that isn't constantly getting angry at people, that isn't finding strife all around you, that isn't slipping things out of your tongue that you think, that wasn't very nice. Like, do you want to be someone who brings life and hope and joy to this world? Then what James tells us is what the scriptures have been telling us right from the beginning all the way through. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Press in to Jesus. Abide in him. Abide in the one who created it all, sustains it all, redeems it all, and restores it all. Abide in him, and he will do that for you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I feel like when I read James, first of all, I was like, man, I feel like I just got knocked out in the floor of a boxing ring. Which is something because I don't know anything about boxing or anything about sport in general. Um, but I could hear the bell ringing, you know. <laughs> Got to the end of James and I was like, boom, I am done. And then I read it again. And as I read it again, I realized that the letter of James is littered with the language of love. It is littered with the language that tells us that he has planted a word in us that can save us. That if we seek him, we will find him. That he is full of compassion and mercy and that he longs for us to produce fruit. He isn't there saying, how are you doing with this stuff? Oh, epic fell. Not sure that I can love you anymore. He's saying, oh, you've, you failed? Well, where you failed, I have succeeded. And come to me. Come to me. Abide in me. Abide in me. So we're going to worship I want to just create some space just to reflect on, on what the word has said to us and to let the spirit of God challenge us. And I want, to, I want to say to you guys, as we worship now, bring that stuff before him that you know that maybe you have been failing at, that you know that maybe you have been struggling with. And just be real with him and say, God, I can't do this. I can't do this by myself. I need you. 
I need you. I need to press into you again. Let's stand.